Good morning, church. Uh, Pastor Adrian here. Um, I've been praying for you. I hope that um, that you are well and staying safe. Um, before we get started, a brief announcement. I just want to um, share that a lot of the feedback I've been getting from the Mount Pleasant Church is that we uh, that many people are not prepared to meet. Uh, this Sabbath or next Sabbath. Uh, a lot of the uh, feedback I've been getting is that because of health concerns or because of the guidelines that some people are not wanting to meet quite yet. So our board will meet uh, most likely the 18th, uh, if not the 17th, and we will discuss the issue again there. Um, so for the next few Sabbaths, uh, we will not be meeting in person. Uh, I want to encourage us as a church to continue praying about this issue. Um, I would be happy to receive phone calls or, or emails or text messages, again, with feedback uh, from people about what their wishes and desires are. I want to reemphasize that I am here uh, for those who are wanting to reopen uh, and reopen safely. Uh, so I just want to uh, encourage uh, those who are wanting to return. And I know that these times are very difficult, and this is new territory for all of us. So please be pray patient with the process, and please be praying uh, about the process as well, too. Again, I'm available for conversation at any time. Uh, so this is how we will meet uh, for this Sabbath and, and uh, the following Sabbath as well, here uh, virtually. And uh, for those listening uh, from the parish church, uh, it is meeting today, uh, which at the airing of this video, it's going to be May 9th. And I will update others on how that goes and what that looks like. Uh, I'm very excited about that. Uh, so having said those things, uh, let's get into the message for today, uh, which is going to be from Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 15 through 20. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And in recent weeks, some things have been brought to my attention. I've been hearing more on the radio um, uh, how these changes that we've all been going through, people having to stay home uh, with their family, the changes that have been uh, happening with people losing their jobs and students not being able to uh, walk for their graduation, seniors in high school and college, and all of these things are causing tension in people's homes. And so um, I would like to speak uh, on that very issue, on, on conflict resolution, particularly among Christians. And so Matthew chapter 18 uh, is dealing with that very issue. Uh, so let's look here. Uh, we will also be in Isaiah. We'll also be in uh, the book of uh, 1 Samuel as well. Uh, so please uh, be ready to uh, turn to these passages. Matthew 18. 15, it says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. 
But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much uh, for how you've been keeping all of us. Uh, Thank you, God, for the scriptures and for this passage. And I just pray as we wrestle with this passage for us today, uh, for our church, and for I know that many homes of people are are, are uh, closer than they have been in a long time. People are, um, uh, some of them are, are just needing some counsel from your word. I ask and pray, God, that you would speak to us and guide us with your Holy Spirit as we go through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin by sharing uh, a, a story by Dr. Ravi Zacharias. I've shared uh, some of his, uh, his uh, ministry, about his ministry before. Dr. Ravi Zacharias is a Christian apologist who's been uh, defending the Christian faith for many years. He goes around the world to these prestigious universities and speaks to atheists and agnostics. Uh, he speaks uh, to, philosoph- to philosophers, and um, he defends the Christian faith. And he was telling a story about once when he was doing a presentation in one of these prestigious uh, universities. And he was doing a series that lasted a few nights, and what he would do is he would uh, speak to the audience, he would speak to the students and the, the staff and the teachers, and uh, then he would do a question and answer program afterwards. And so he was telling about during uh, the end of, of the, one of the programs, as he was coming towards the end, uh, during one of the question and answer segments, that a young man stood up and he said, Dr. Zacharias, I brought two friends who are atheists to listen to your lectures and to listen about Christianity. This young man was a Christian, though he was going to the secular university. And he said, my two friends, they were ready to challenge anything that you said. And so you did your presentations and the question and answers the first few nights. And as we were walking home, I asked my friends who were atheists, why did they not ask the questions that they said they were going to ask you about Christianity in your presentations? And there was a moment of silence, and then his atheist friend looked back at him and said that the arguments, the presentation was too persuasive for Christianity. 
In other words, he, he, had, he had convinced these, uh, uh, these atheists, he had appealed to their reason uh, of the validity and the truth of Christianity. But then his friend went on to say, his atheist friend went on to say, even though the arguments were so persuasive for Christianity, I am still a determined atheist. And so this young man went on to ask Ravi Zacharias, you know, what would his response be? And Zacharias went on to say, well, uh, that's, that's pretty much uh, what he expected, you know, that, that they were not atheists because of intellectual reasons. They were atheists because of moral reasons. And uh, so the illustration goes on. But I would ask you today, what would you do if someone was so defiant, even though they heard persuasive arguments of how maybe they were wrong or, or how the path that they were taking was not right, of, of how their actions or, or their life uh, was, was not good or, or was, was out of harmony with God? Well, how, what would your response to be to someone who was so determined in their way? Now, if it was an atheist, a non-Christian, that's one thing. But let me ask you, what if you had to deal with this type of thing, this determined uh, uh, resistance or this determined way, this uh, determination for a person to go their own way if they were a Christian? What, What would your response be? Especially if there was a Christian, a professed Christian, who uh, determined to continue on in their sin. And so this very issue is presented here in Matthew chapter 18. What do we do if we have this kind of thing in the church? The Bible tells us to address such blatant sin with the offender. But how do we do that? If somebody is, is uh, living in obvious sin, if somebody has uh, obviously offended someone else, how do we address that? What steps do we take with the individual and how far should it go? And here in Matthew 18, Jesus has given us clear direction in handling such conflict with believers in the church. Now, what inspired Jesus to give this discourse or this instruction in the first place? Well, if we go back to verse 1 here in Matthew chapter 18, we see that there was a question about who would be the greatest. Matthew 18, verse 1, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so Jesus begins his discourse uh, about the importance of being humble as a child and not to offend a child. And then the parable of the sheep, the lost sheep going astray. And so he begins this whole discourse that really uh, ends with uh, chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 10, talking about marriage and divorce. And so the word offend or sin is mentioned multiple times in this chunk of passages here. So when we read this, uh, this conversation 
that the disciples were having, when we read it over in Mark chapter 9, and when we read it in Luke chapter 9, we see that it, it was actually a dispute among the disciples of who would be the greatest. They were actually disputing among themselves about who would be the greatest among them because they were expecting Jesus to sit upon his throne very soon. And so they all wanted to be first. They all wanted to sit on his right and his left. So most likely there was, at this point, there was strong tension building up among the disciples as they began to argue about who would be the greatest. And Jesus could sense this tension building. He could sense that uh, there there's possibly could be some division among the disciples uh, as they're, they're having this di- dispute among each other. And so he nips this thing in the butt. And he gives a, a discourse on dealing with offenses toward the vulnerable. And, and he goes on here in Matthew chapter 18. And so he gets to the point here in verse 15 talking about when there is a clear violation of one Christian against another. And this could even be taken into the realm of groups, of of groups of people offending each other. If a person is offended by a group or uh, an individual uh, offends a group. And so he talks about what do we do when there is a clear sin, there's a clear violation against another person there there's a conflict there's a problem what do we do and so this passage here in verses 15 through 20 it talks about uh, how when there is sin in the church the church as a whole we must take the proper steps to remove it from the body of Christ, and to bring about redemption to the sinner. That's what this is all about. But we must do it in harmony with God. So, as you read this uh, step-by-step process that Jesus gives, just reading it at face value, it, it seems very simple. These are the steps one, two, three, in dealing with a sinning brother, in dealing with somebody, somebody who has offended or violated you. But as we all know, in life's experience, it is much more difficult, much more difficult to actually do this in real life than just read it in the scriptures. Now there's something very interesting here, and this is this is one of the where we first sometimes we get kind of caught up in dealing with Christian conflict. In verse 16, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 15, Jesus says, "Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone." Now, oftentimes we've all been in church, and we know how these kind of things can be. Oftentimes, when someone is offended, many times they'll go straight to somebody else 
to 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 vent or or to criticize or or to say their frustrations to somebody else instead of going to the individual that that ha- happens sometimes doesn't it and sometimes that's how the gossip chain can get going uh sometimes that's that's how we uh, try to get back at the other person who has offended us. Well, let's just slander their name or their character, or or let's let's just you know take it out in the realm of of gossip. And so Jesus doesn't want us to take that route. Jesus tells us to do something much different, something that requires integrity, something that requires courage, and something that requires faith, because we are believing that if we take the steps that Jesus has given to us in resolving conflict, then he will work out that conflict. And so he tells us to go to the sinning brother directly. But how do we do that? Now, in my Bible, it says, go to that person not to somebody else, and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And I thought, well, I, what does that mean to tell them their fault? So in the original Greek language, the word tell him his fault is actually one word. Those four words in English actually come from one Greek word, and the word is elengson. Okay, it's kind of difficult to say. But some versions might actually say, instead of tell him his fault, it might actually say, convict him of his fault. That's what the idea of the word is. It's the idea of going to somebody and pressing the the sin or pressing the issue to that person in such a way as to appeal to their reason or their conscience. It's, it doesn't have the idea of an argument, which that happens too sometimes, doesn't it? It, it doesn't. It's, it's not saying go and, and in a hostile way. It's not saying to go uh, with self-justification. It's saying to go to this person with a calm, rational mind and appeal to their reason about how and why they have offended you. And so... This is a very important part in resolving Christian con- uh, conflict. Is trying to it's it's seeing the other person as somebody who has the capacity to reason, and it's it's going to somebody and and listening to them as well, even though maybe they have offended you and they have done the wrong. It's inviting somebody into a conversation. It's not going to them with with a baton or going to beat them up with scripture or beat them up with the spirit of prophecy. No, it's not going to the person with the intention to win a fight. It's going to a person and saying, look, we are both Christians. We are both brothers or sisters here. We can sit down as mature people and work this out together. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. But you know what, what 
what I really appreciate about God, God doesn't just tell us to do this. God actually does this himself. God actually tries to appeal to our reason. He, he tries to appeal to us as intellectual people who have the ability to think uh, through things and, and understand. Why do I say that? Well, turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. I love this passage uh, in Scripture. This, this says so much about the character of God. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. This is God speaking to his people through Isaiah the prophet. And God has a bone to pick with his people, so to speak, because they have totally gone off the path that he has called them to. And uh, there's idolatry, there's sin, there's betrayal. Uh, these people he has called out uh, of Egypt. And he says in verse 18, we know this verse, we've, we've heard it many times before, as God is speaking to the Israelites, he says, Isaiah 1.18, he says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I love that about God. God has done nothing wrong. God has no error. God does not need to listen. God does not need uh, to sit down and have a conversation. He's already in the right. Yet even our holy, righteous God says, let us sit down together and reason through this issue. And I appreciate what my commentary says here in my study Bible. It says that the invitation to reason together reveals something attractive about God's character and purposes. God is helping his people become mature. He engages them as partners rather than as a ruler only concerned about carrying out his own will. The change he desires among his people requires their participation and the diagnosis of their true condition. Well, I thought that was a good commentary. Let me read that again. The change he desires among his people requires their participation in the diagnosis of their true condition. It's one thing to tell somebody why they have done wrong. It's one thing to explain to somebody about why they have done and point out all the errors or mistakes that they've made. But it's one thing to sit down and have a conversation with a person in such a way that they can see it themselves. That's what God wants us to do. And that can only be done as people sit down with a Christian spirit and they reason together. And I want to say that this can only be accomplished among sinners, among people who have issues with, with pride and selfishness. This can only be done when it is infused or when it is, it is 
it is injected with the grace of Jesus Christ. Ellen White, in her commentary on Matthew 18 from Desire of Ages, uh, page 440 and paragraph 3, this is what she says. She says, Often the truth must be plainly spoken to the erring. He must be led to see his error, that he may reform. But you are not to judge or condemn. Make no make, make no attempt at self-justification. Let all your efforts be for his recovery. In treating the wounds of the soul, there is need of the most delicate touch, the finest sensibility. Only the love that flows from the suffering one of Calvary can avail here. Wow, that last sentence is very powerful. Only the love that flows from the suffering one of Calvary can avail here. And you know, church, I think that appeals to us that when there is conflict among each other, when there is conflict uh, in, in, in the church, when there is conflict uh, in the workplace, when there is conflict at home, it appeals to us to revisit Calvary. It appeals to us to go climb the mountain that Jesus had to climb and look at every conflict and problem that we have in that perspective. As a matter of fact, I would even be willing to say that that is the whole context of Matthew chapter 18. Why do I say that? Because back in Matthew chapter 17... Verse 22 and 23, Jesus is predicting his death and his resurrection. So really the whole uh, whole discourse in Matthew 18 should go back to Jesus' confession of what would happen to him very soon at Calvary. How how things would would change, how how much uh, more... Uh, of the power and the grace of Christ would be seen in in our churches, in our workplaces, in our homes, if we would do that very thing. Climb that mountain of Calvary again. See everything in the perspective of what he did for us there. And so this is the first step that Jesus gives us in dealing with Christian conflict. And all of us, at some point in our lives, come to the place where we just need to say, God, I I don't know what to do here. I just need your intervention. God, please speak to my heart. Please help me in, in, uh, in this problem. And so... Jesus appeals to us to approach to approach uh, the offender uh, with that attitude. And I also want to say something here as well, too. If Jesus is appealing to us to reason with somebody else, then that tells, it is, tells us that it is very important that when we sit down to listen to somebody else or we talk to them on the phone or however we decide to communicate, it is very important that we learn to listen to the other. 
It is very important that we are willing, even if we don't agree with the other person, even if we don't uh, comply with the other person, even if we don't uh, uh, take their, their point of view, that it is important that we learn to listen to one another. God offers to listen to us in Isaiah 1.18. And here James gives perfect counsel. Many of us have heard this uh, passage before, James chapter 1 and verses 19 and 20. James tells us, a very practical book uh, in Scripture, James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so, with these things in mind, then Jesus appeals to us to resolve as much as possible these conflicts that arise. But he knows, just as I had mentioned in the previous illustration at the beginning of this message, that that is not always the case. People are not always willing to listen to reason uh, from an individual that they have offended. And so, Jesus actually tells us, if, if they will not listen to you, then take two or three witnesses, he says here. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And that is step two. Now, this, at this point, the body of Christ is starting to get involved in the situation. At this point, it's getting so serious that two, these two cannot resolve their conflict or their problems together. And Jesus said, that's okay. It's not the end of the effort. Now we take it to the next level. Now we invite others. We invite, uh, these are brothers and sisters in Christ, to come alongside and to help navigate through the issue, to try to bring some resolution. And this is actually a, a common practice uh, in many other countries. This is, this is a common practice in ancient times. Uh, but I think in our individualistic culture here in the West, and especially in America, we like to try to resolve things by ourselves. And we feel that if we cannot do that by ourselves, uh, then there's no other way. It just that, that's, the end of, uh, that's the end of the story. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that sometimes we need others to come alongside us. Now, in step two, we are not bringing along somebody who is only going to be on our side. We're not bringing along somebody who is only going to come into the, into the situation, whatever it is, and help us beat up the offender. That's obviously what not, not what Jesus is advocating here. He's not advocating that kind of thing at all. He's advocating for somebody 
to come into the situation who can give another perspective, somebody who is neutral in the situation. He's calling for us to invite somebody, a, a, a godly person, who it can come in and be brutally honest with both parties. Who can be brutally honest with both parties and, and help them to understand from a third perspective what the issues really are. And so as, as I was thinking about what, what Jesus is saying here, uh, there's, there's a story that came to my mind from Scripture that I thought perfectly illustrates how God uses other people to help us when we have conflicts. And it's a story back in 1 Samuel chapter 25. It's the story of, of David and Nabal and Abigail, who is the wife of Nabal. Now, um, some of you remember this story. For those of you who do not, uh, here in 1 Samuel chapter 25, this is a period of time where David was uh, basically, he was running away from, from Saul. Uh, he was kind of a fugitive, although he had really done nothing wrong. Uh, Saul was very jealous of him. And there was a time when, so, when uh, David and his men, he had a few hundred men that were in his, you know, uh, um, I don't want to call it a gang, but these were, these were valiant men who followed David and uh, believed that he was going to be the next king, and so they were faithful to him. But they, David and his, his group of, of friends here, his men, they actually uh, were protecting up around Mount Carmel in the northwest part of Palestine uh, a group of shepherds. And they were protecting, uh, the, the, uh, David says like, that his, he and his men were like a wall on every side, protecting Nabal's shepherds and their livestock. And so they just did this voluntarily. They thought that they would do this kind uh, act in protecting uh, these people. And so after a period of time of doing this, then David asked these shepherds, they said, could you go to your master Nabal and could you tell him that we've been helping to protect you and could you, could you just uh, request some some uh, refreshments from him, some food and and some some water uh, from him, to, just to help us out. And so they go back to their master Nabal, and Nabal, who is a very wealthy man, he has a, he has a, a, a great amount of of goods and livestock. He goes, he sends messengers back to David and says, "Who is David?" Uh, that I should help him? Should I help every renegade who runs away from their master? And basically he insults him. He says, I'm not going to give you anything. I don't care what you did for my man. Uh, I don't owe you anything. I didn't ask you to take care of my man. And so David got really upset. Now David is a man of war, okay? He is a man of war. He is, he is fearless. He's a very brave young man. And so he he is sincerely offended. He has, he has been wronged by, by Nabal. Now, if Nabal did not want to provide any refreshments for David's men, he could have said so very kindly. He could have been a, a generous person and said, thank you so much for caring 
for them, but at this time, uh, I'm not going to be able to fulfill this request. But he was extremely rude about it. And his name means fool, and that's how he acted toward David. And so David says, all right, I'm going to kill this guy. So he he gathers some of his men, and he says, we're going to go get this guy uh, for insulting us in this way. And in their time, in their culture, this was very insulting. So he he's on his way to slaughter all the males in Nabal's house, okay? And and he would have won. I mean, he would have just swooped down upon them at night and, and killed everybody. So he's he's very upset at this time. He's been embarrassed in front of his own men. And so he's doing something here that we would not expect a man of God to do. He's on his way to slaughter the household of Nabal. And indeed, this was not something that God approved of. But here they are in conflict. They're fighting amongst each other, these two households, so to speak. And while David is on his way, he's hot with anger and rage, and he's self-justifying what he's about to do. But when the wife of Nabal finds out, Abigail, when she finds out, and we see here that she is a very wise and humble woman, a godly woman, she says, I have to intervene here. I I, I have to do something here, even though at at this time she probably didn't know it, but she was actually under no harm herself. Uh, David and his men, they were not going to kill the women and the children. But she goes and she sends an offering to David. She sends food and she sends uh, uh, wine or grape juice before her as an offering to David. And when she finally meets him, when he's on the way, she found out that he's on his way to, to destroy Nabal's uh, uh, household, his, his men, and, and, and to bring vengeance. She basically tells him, please forgive the offense of this fool Nabal. That is his name. And she tells him, please don't do this in, in bringing revenge. Don't, don't, Avenge yourself. Everybody knows that you're going to be the king. So don't avenge yourself. Let God take care of this situation. Take this offering that I am giving you. And don't tarnish your name by acting out of anger and frustration with Nabal and killing innocent people in the process. She said, this will, this will not be good for you as our f- future king. This is not something that would please God. Let God deal with the situation. And so this is David's response to Abigail. And in, in 1 Samuel 25 and verse 32, he says, Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you to me this day. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her uh, hand what she had brought him and she and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. And now as the story goes on, 
uh, God did actually avenge David. And later on, when Nabal finds out what what happened, uh, it said he he turned to stone. And my understanding is he had a stroke. He was struck down by God. And uh, and God took care of this situation. He is the one who avenged David. But I look at this story and I say, thank God for those who intercede. Amen. Thank God for, at times, that third party who comes into the situation and they speak some sense into us. They speak some sense into our lives. They speak some sense into the situation. And they help us to see our own error. And admitting the error of others. Acknowledging the error of others. Acknowledging the foolishness of others, just as Abigail did here. She did not justify Nabal at all. She did not say, well, you know, David, you have no right. She acknowledged it. She was brutally honest Uh, with both of them about what they were about to do. And she told him in a humble Christian way, a humble God-fearing way, David, this is not right. And and you should not have, uh, you should not be on your way to do this. This will tarnish your name. And and this would not please God. And so she was brave and, and, and she was honest and she was sent as a counselor of God to bring some reconciliation. And so, church, that's what we need oftentimes. When step one doesn't work, uh, God says step two is bring in a third party or parties. Again, these are God-fears. These are Christians. These are people who believe in God to help to mitigate the situation. And so Jesus uh, plainly teaches here the importance of, of getting that third or fourth perspective on the situation. Now we all we all need it. You know, we're we're all growing. This is this is the body of Christ working together to purge out sin and pride and selfishness from the body of Christ. And so Jesus says, this is step two. If step one doesn't work, this is what we do. And then Jesus knows that there are times when there are those who are so determined in their way. They are so determined in their sins. They are so determined that no reasoning, that no conversation uh, will, that no, no, that not, that very, nothing of what we do will bring them to the place uh, of, of them turning around. Then, Jesus says to bring it to the church and bring it to the church. And if they will not listen to the church, then let them be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. This is a very difficult process. This is a very difficult thing. As a matter of fact, it rarely, rarely happens in our church. And I wish I had time to speak more on step three. I I simply do not. But I want to say this about step three when it comes to church discipline and censure is that this is a clear principle in Scripture of church discipline. That it is very important 
that when the church decides to discipline somebody, that it is a clear, undeniable violation of the word of God. It, is, it should not be something that is questionable or where one person uh, has, has simply been offended in there and they're trying to get revenge on this other person. This should be a clear-cut case of sin against God, of sin against the church. And oftentimes the most uh, obvious uh, sin where this happens and this is carried through are, are things like adultery, or, or uh, stealing in the church, those type of things, where we take it to step three. And Paul even talks about this in his letter to the Corinthians. First Corinthians, Paul actually addresses this issue, and I will look very briefly at First Corinthians, uh, and I believe it's chapter five, when he talks about how there's immorality in the church. And he says that there's there's... A sin among the Corinthians that is not even named against the Gentiles. And the sin was that a man was having his own father's wife. He was sleeping with his stepmother. And if it wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't say it because it's so, uh, it's so gross. It's so uh, sinful. It's so demoralizing. But it's right there in Scripture. And so Paul instructs the Corinthians that the next time that they meet together, along with his spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, that they deliver such a one to Satan. It says it right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, what does it mean to deliver such a one to Satan? What it means in, in the days of Paul, that was terminology that was used to put them out of the synagogue. That means that they were no longer allowed in the synagogue. They were outside of the protection of of the body of believers, which had God's divine blessing was supposed to be upon it. They were outside of that ark of salvation, so to speak. And in this, even this, was not meant to totally disfellowship them for all uh, eternity from the body of Christ. But even Paul says here, in verse 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's even in this, there's a salvific uh, tone to it. There's a salvific a goal to putting them out of the church in, in step three, if they would not listen to the church, if they determined in their sinful ways. So that eventually, at some point, they would see their error, they would see their wrong, and then they would be brought back into the fellowship. They would be brought back into the body of Christ. And whenever there is a censure by the church, there should be a plan. There should be a, a, a plan about how are we going to bring this person back into the fellowship. It's not cutting somebody off for all eternity. No, that's never God's desire. His mercy is still for those who err. And so Jesus gives us these clear steps in dealing with blatant sin in the church. Church, we must remember that the real enemy is out there. The real enemy is sin. The real problem 
is our own pride and selfishness. And Jesus Christ provides the remedy for all of our conflicts within the church and within our relationships. I wanted to close here with an illustration uh, of, a, of a woman here named Joy. I got this, uh, this is a true story from uh, Focus on the Family website. Uh, she had an issue with her boss. I think this is very common uh, for people in uh, talking about conflict. It says here, Joy turned on the news as the anchor began a segment on a local bad boss contest. The story touched a nerve. Think I should write in, Joy asked her husband. Not if you want to keep your job, Tim replied. The anchor ticked off a list of complaints filed by the listeners. Fired for being sick. Unpaid overtime. Sexual harassment. Obsessive compulsive behavior. Although Joy's situation paled in comparison, it grew more intolerable by the day. Sleepless nights, headaches, stomach pain, and the morning uh, list of symptoms uh, scared her. She even experienced a panic attack for her first in 20 years, and that's not all. She and her husband fought nearly every day that week. Something had to give. Joy loved her job, but recently had considered quitting. Her easygoing boss had received a well-deserved promotion leaving her with a new supervisor, one that Joy found challenging to work for. One morning, Joy's supervisor confronted her about a complaint lodged against her by a co-worker. And the complaint was, Joy, instead of emailing team members about the project, just walk down the hall and work out the details in person, said the complaint, the, the person complaining. Joy struggled with an invisible disability that sometimes made walking difficult and painful. Recent stress in the office had caused her symptoms to flare. In fact, she spoke with her doctor who cautioned her to pace herself and to limit the amount of walking she did until the flare subsided. When she tried to explain her limitations to her boss, She just did not understand and responded harshly. Crushed, Joy called her husband sobbing during the lunch hour. Tim, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to quit. Tim listened patiently and said, Joy, you've tried to walk with, you've tried to talk with your supervisor and she did not hear what you were saying. I think you should take it to the next level. Why not talk with human resources to see if they can help? Joy agreed to meet with human resources. The director of human resources suggested the schedule to schedule a meeting that would mediate with her boss and her boss's supervisor. In the days leading up to the meeting, Joy spent time in prayer, asking God to reveal those sinful attitudes in her own life that contributed to the conflict. She confessed her pride, her rebellion, and her anger that recently had begun to seep out in sarcastic comments. She asked for the women in her Bible study to pray for her. 
Joy prepared practically, too. She asked her doctor for a letter describing her illness, her limitations, and ways she could work around them. Further, she copied portions from the book her doctor had given her, explaining her condition, how to manage it, and how to remain productive at work. When the day of the meeting arrived, Joy was ready. After the human resources director opened the meeting, she invited Joy to voice her concerns. She began, I enjoy working for this organization. I look forward to helping you meet your objectives for many years to come. I admit that I've struggled with the changes at the office. I've been frustrated and angry. I've allowed that to spill over into my relationship with you and my coworkers. I'm sorry. It was unprofessional. I understand my co-workers' frustration at how my disability limits my personal interaction, she continued. It frustrates me, too, but as much as I'd like to change it, I can't. However, I'd like to give you a little more information about my illness so that we can work together to resolve the problem. I'm confident we can reach an agreement that meets your objectives yet takes into consideration my limitations. For the next half hour, Joy shared with her boss and others in the meeting the information she had brought with her, handing each a copy. As Joy spoke, she saw her boss's face soften. During the conversation, Joy acknowledged her boss's preference that she work with team members in person. On days when I'm having problems walking, perhaps team members can come down to my office. And on days that's not possible, maybe you can pick up the phone and talk with team members rather than emailing, interjected her boss. Of course, said Joy. The meeting concluded and both had what they needed. Joy felt validated and heard and that her supervisor had a new understanding of her illness. While the meeting addressed Joy's immediate concern, she continued to struggle with aspects of her boss's management style. She continued to pray about the situation and asked members of her Bible study to pray as well. A few months later, there was a second reorganization. Joy was placed under a different supervisor, one whose management style worked well for her and which gave her an opportunity to gain new skills. If I had quit when I wanted to, I would have missed this opportunity to gain new skills, Joy explains. She loves her job and looks forward to going to work each day. It's the most satisfying job I've had in my entire professional career, she says. Amen. You know, if she would have quit when she wanted to quit, she would have never had those new experiences. But you know, I think what's really important here is to see that she took both steps that Jesus had instructed us in Scripture. Step one, to go to the individual. And when that didn't work, she took it to others to others who could help to mediate and mitigate, and when she did what Jesus had instructed, and, and the boss was still there, and the, and the problems persisted, then what happened? God stepped in 
and he moved that supervisor to a different place. Because Joy had done what Jesus had instructed in Matthew chapter 18. She took those steps that Jesus had given to us in resolving conflict. And so God worked out the issue in the end. Church, God God is not a liar. God cannot err in the counsel that he gives. And so this issue you know, of, of conflict is a, is a very difficult thing. It's something that, uh, that we often find ourselves in a place where we're quite stuck at times. There, there are times when people cross boundaries and violate us and violate the clear word of God. But I want to appeal to us today to do the difficult thing. I want to appeal to us today to act with integrity. I want to appeal to us today to act with courage and love and faith. And I want to appeal to us today that whatever the issues are that arise, that we revisit Mount Calvary. We revisit the cross of Calvary and see everything in that perspective and do what God instructs us to do, and then let him work out all the rest. May God bless you, and happy Sabbath.